Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This is Dave Waters' alluvial capital Q1 2023 letter. Dear partners, Alluvial Fund began the year on a positive note, rising 3.6%. By comparison, the Russell 2000 index gained 2.7%, and the Russell Microcap index fell by 2.8%. Looking at these figures, one might reasonably assume the market is having a quiet time, with little consequential news to trouble or excite investors. In fact, the market was rocked by a banking crisis that threatened to destabilize the financial sector and beyond before gradually dissipating. Small cap indexes were up 10% at the end of January, only to give up those gains and then some in March before staging a recovery. In typical fashion, Alluvial Fund plotted a steadier course. Small company shares remain out of favor compared to those of larger companies. Despite this quarter's gains, the gulf between our securities trading prices and their intrinsic values is as large as I have ever observed. Fourth quarter 2022 earnings were very good overall, but the market's reaction to even the best news was muted. In response, I made some moves in our portfolio this quarter, selling out of one of our holdings and adding a few others. I sold all of our shares of GEE Group 
this quarter. In my last letter, I mentioned how G's group, G Group's place in our portfolio was dependent on management's commitment to using the company's balance sheet cash for the benefit of shareholders. Well, another quarter came and went with zero evidence that management's promises and assurances were anything but empty words. Despite earlier proclamations of, quote, good things, unquote, to come, the company formally dismissed the idea of returning cash to shareholders and again failed to deliver on long-promised profitable acquisitions. I'm happy to put our capital to better use elsewhere and to use our experience with G Group as a reminder that a lack of urgency and integrity on the part of company management can negate almost any degree of good economics or valuation. In happier news, I have identified another opportunity in the Canadian industrial sector. Small Canadian manufacturers have become something of a theme for Alluvial, first with Supermex and now with our new holding, Hammond Power Solutions. For decades, Hammond Power has been producing transformers, the boring but utterly essential components responsible for transferring energy between circuits and electrical installations. Though they are one of the oldest examples of electrical technology, transformers are required by virtually anything that creates or employs electrical energy. The high-quality, dry-type transformers produced by Hammond are widely used in factories and commercial buildings, power grids, and renewable energy facilities, as well as oil and gas, mining, and many other industries. Demand for transformers has exploded as the electrification of the world economy accelerates. Despite running its factories at full capacity, Hammond has been unable to keep pace with inbound orders. The company plans to invest $40 million to increase its production capacity, as it expects demand for its, produ for its products to remain strong in the coming years. Despite the stellar outlook, Hammond Power Shares changed hands at below 10 times trailing earnings, and the enterprise is valued at 7 times EBIT. 2023 earnings will increase from last year's as a result of price increases and continued strong demand. Hammond employs a conservative capital structure with zero debt and produces free cash flow like clockwork. There are a few things I like more than finding a high-quality firm like Hammond trading at a pedestrian valuation. While Hammond shares have appreciated as the company's revenues and profits grow, the market has yet to fairly credit the company for its growth profile and profitability. Banking brouhaha. This year has been a rough one for many banks and bank stocks, as evidenced by the 25% drop in the S&P Regional Banking Index during the quarter. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, as well as the ongoing precarious position of First Republic Bank and a few others, caused investors to question the safety and stability of nearly every American bank, no matter how sound. We are invested in a handful of banks, all recipients of low-cost permanent capital, courtesy of the U.S. Treasury's Emergency Capital Investment Program. While the goal of this program was to encourage lending in economically disadvantaged areas, it also happened to make its recipients some of the nation's best capitalized banks in terms of total equity to assets. For that reason, there is no cause for concern regarding the safety of any of the banks that Alluvial Fund holds. The market seems to agree as the share prices of our four banks fell just 1% on average this quarter. Each of our banks trade at mid-single-digit multiples of this year's earnings and at a discount to economic book value, which I calculated by discounting the value of the ESIP capital infusion at market rates. I continue to believe that each bank will be valued at two to three times current prices in a few years' time. That is not to say our banks aren't experiencing the same challenges as other banks. The interest rate environment is causing a steady increase in funding costs, and credit quality will come under some pressure if the economy slips into recession but our banks are well-positioned to weather the storm. The American banking industry is divided into roughly three segments. There are gigantic national too-big-to-fail banks, 
regional banks, and community banks. Of these, I believe that regional banks have the toughest path forward. They don't have the implicit government guarantee nor national footprint that the giants have, nor can they build the personal relationships, local knowledge, and sticky deposit base that a good community bank can. There are plenty of reasons why a consumer or a business might choose a mega bank or a micro bank. I don't see many reasons for choosing an unspecialized regional bank. I expect that large banks will be the majority, will be the major beneficiaries of deposits and lending relationships that leave regional banks, but I also expect community banks to capture a surprising amount. I also expect them to avoid some of the additional regulatory measures that are no doubt coming. Other portfolio updates. Our largest position remains P10 Inc., which reported another quarter of growth in assets under management, bringing the total to $21.2 billion, up 23% year over year. P10 shares are down year-to-date, no doubt reflecting investor pessimism around the fundraising environment for alternative asset managers. And yet, P10 just announced that its subsidiary RCP advisors succeeded in raising $328 million for RCP XV22. So that's 27, exceeding the targeted $300 million. Despite the headwinds, or I'm sorry, that's 17, not uh, 27. RCB 17, exceeding the targeted $300 million. Despite the headwinds, P10's managers are still attracting new capital. Though P10 has not found any suitable acquisitions of late, the company has found value in its own shares, repurchasing 1.6% of shares outstanding in the fourth quarter alone. The logic of these buybacks is unassailable. Try as I might, I cannot find a better opportunity on a reward per, u- per unit of risk basis than P10 shares at under 12 times perfectly visible contractually guaranteed recurring free cash flow. Unidata SPA remains a large holding and distinctly undervalued. Shares were pressured earlier this year by the company's equity offering in support of its acquisition of TWT Group. Adding TWT will be tremendously creative to Unidata's earnings and cash flows, but the market is taking a wait-and-see approach. Unidata also announced it had signed a contract for the construction of its new undersea cable, which will be operational in two years' time. Finally, the company has applied to uplist to the Borsa Italiana Star segment, a more prominent segment with higher listing standards that should bring additional attention to the company and its shares. The other day, an anonymous Twitter friend shared the picture below from Rome. This isn't just some nondescript metal hatch. It's Unidata's nondescript metal hatch. I always appreciate a reminder that the stocks and securities we invest in are far more than figures on a screen. Their ownership in and obligations of organizations run by and employing real people with real assets doing, hopefully, profitable things in the world. And these things take time. While Unidata shares have disappointed lately, our investment has been an extraordinary success over our period of ownership. Unidata's revenues and earnings will continue to grow rapidly as the company brings broadband internet to thousands of businesses and households, many for the first time. In due time, the market will realize the essential and irreplaceable infrastructure that Unidata holds and owns is worth more than the seven times 2025 normalized free cash flow it fetches today. I must take a second to recognize EcoCorp, which has quietly become a significant holding for the fund. I last mentioned the company almost three years ago when shares were trading around $19. The company was valued around $100 million and had produced operating income of $12.3 million in the trailing year. Today, Eco shares change hands in the low 30s. The company is valued at $140 million and produced operating income of $28 million for the year ended February 28th, 2023. Impressive and still extremely cheap. It's likely that Eco's results will moderate. COVID-related supply chain issues resulted in improved margins for companies like Eco and their Bizco Industries subsidiary. 
But even if operating margins were to recede to 2019 levels, EcoShares would be trading at nine times normalized earnings net of cash and securities. I expect Eco's, Eco's revenue growth to continue at mid-teens pace. The basic electrical components and fasteners that Bisco Industries, Industries distributes are in high demand. The company is rising to the occasion today employing 370 sales employees, 9.5% more than a year ago. Tim S.A., a member of our basket of Polish stocks, received a takeover offer in late March, causing shares to jump 28%. I sold our holdings in the following days. Our investment in Tim was successful, but alas, too brief. I'd hoped to hold our shares for quite some time and to sell them years down the road at a significantly higher price. However, I cannot blame management for wishing to engineer a fair outcome for shareholders when the market stubbornly refused to recognize Tim's progress. I'm working to invest the proceeds of our Tim investment into other Polish securities, which offer some of the world's best valuations. Other stocks in the Polish basket include Hortico, a growing gardening supplier trading at less than four times earnings, Auto Partner, a high-quality auto parts distributor growing at 30% but trading at 12 times earnings, and a new holding in a software company that grew 90% in 2022, but trades at less than eight times normalized free cash flow. Our Polish holdings have been strong contributors to Alluvial Fund since we began investing in Poland in 2019. It's a volatile market and prone to long periods where the general market mood overshadows individual company results, but buying quality holdings at great prices works, given enough time. One Day Stocks I've written before about the concept of one-day stocks. These are stocks and securities that are so obscure, off the run, and or illiquid that they're unlikely to approach their fair value in the short run, but nevertheless offer incredible value that will accrue to investors one day. And sometimes in literally one day as the result of a buyout merger, a balance sheet recap, or some other catalyzing transaction. It's never wise to put too much of one's portfolio in any one of these securities because one day could be a decade off. Still, a diverse basket of these securities offers attractive upside. I recently found a new addition for our one-day collection. Skytop Lodge is a historic Poconos hotel and resort operating since 1928. The property includes 124 guest rooms and 5,500 acres of private woodlands, a lake, and a golf course. While Skytop's fortunes and those of the greater Poconos region have risen and fallen over time, the company's financials have improved significantly in recent years. Skytop has operated profitably, paid down debt, and performed major upgrades to its property, offering improved amenities, amenities, and bettering the guest experience. Skytop is never going to appeal to travelers seeking the height of luxury and sophistication, but it does have a loyal base of vacationers who appreciate the seclusion and natural beauty of the property and the surrounding area. The reviews are in, and they are good. Alluvial Fund has purchased just over 2% of Skytop Lodge Corp. On a look-through basis, we own 2.5 guest rooms and 112 acres of pristine forest. From a purely financial perspective, we invested at less than six times normalized earnings and cash flows, a 27% cap rate, and at $82,000 per key, land value excluded. Using a very conservative 12.5% cap rate on the property's cash earnings and adjusting for some corporate overhead, I think Skytop shares would be worth at least $2,300 per share in a transaction. I have no idea when or if that transaction will occur, but I am happy to hold a stake in a cash-flowing enterprise where value will continue to accrue with each passing year. I have yet to visit Skytop, but I hope to make the trip later this year with my family. Until then, I'll just keep checking out their webcam and gallery. Special Situations I continue to seek out special situations that offer mid-teens or higher rates of return without meaningful market risks. Thus far in 2023, we have benefited from two liquidating biotech companies, Autonomy Inc. and Cyogene Therapies. We purchased our autonomy shares at an average cost of 
11 six cents and have already received an initial liquidating distribution of 11 cents per share with the potential for up to two additional cents per share as outstanding claims and contingencies are resolved. We purchase our shares of Cyogene Therapies at an average of 0.414 cents per share. The company will soon distribute 38 to 42 cents per share and shareholders may receive additional value as much of as much as 9 cents per share in the course of the liquidation. In both cases, we will have received more than 90% of our initial investment in just a few weeks or months, setting up an attractive rate of return as additional liquidation proceeds are received. Our largest liquidation investment, Retail Value Inc., is proceeding well. In early April, we received $0.17 cents per share, meaning we have now exceeded liquidating distributions in excess of the cost of some of our earlier purchases. I expect us to receive additional distributions totaling around $0.14 cents per share in the coming years. Retail value shares have been converted to interests in a liquidating trust and no longer trade. We are invested in a few other liquidation scenarios that offer similar return profiles, but are too illiquid to mention for now. As attractive as liquidation scenarios can be, they are not the only type of special situation I seek for the fund. Just last week, we took advantage of a fast-moving special situation involving the direct listing of a former private REIT. Private REITs, real estate-owning trusts, that do not trade on a public exchange are rightly regarded as slimy. They nearly always feature egregious insider comp, unsustainable distribution policies, and badly designed incentive structures. They're also highly liquid, much like a timeshare. A private REIT is easy to acquire, but nearly impossible to sell. Because their performance is bad on average, most private REITs have a long list of holders eager to exit. But there are few buyers and none willing to pay anywhere close to the REIT's self-reported net asset value. Enter Peakstone Realty Trust. Founded as Griffin Realty Trust, this private REIT underwent a series of mergers and transactions in recent years and internalized its management, but still found itself unable to grow its net asset value. Peakstone considered liquidating, but ultimately decided to continue and to list its shares on the New York Stock Exchange. And so, with little fanfare, Peakstone Realty Trust shares became publicly tradable. What happens when a highly liquid asset with thousands of trapped holders suddenly become tradable? An avalanche of selling overwhelms the market. Peakstone shares, held by the transfer agent ComputerShare, were sold into the market by the millions without regard for price. Peakstone's self-calculated net asset value per share was $67 as of June 30th, but shares traded as low as $8 on the first day of trading. I recognized the imbalance and was able to accumulate shares at high teens prices. The selling pressure abated in the following days and shares rose to more reasonable levels in the high 30s and low 40s where we took profits and moved on. Situations where a short-term imbalance between buyers and sellers causes prices to diverge wildly from fair value and can be highly lucrative, but they don't often occur. I'm keeping my eyes open for the next one to come along. Thank you for reading and for entrusting a portion of your capital to Alluvial. There is no shortage of market opportunities out there, and I will continue doing my utmost to identify the best of them for us. As always, our focus remains on the ignored, the overlooked, and the misunderstood. I'm at your disposal to answer any questions about our strategy and portfolio, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Best wishes to you and your families, and I look forward to writing to you again in July. This is Scott Miller's Greenhaven Road Q1 letter. Dear fellow investors, the fund returned approximately 17% in the first quarter. Returns will vary by fund and investment class, so please check your statements. As fears of runaway inflation waned during the quarter, there appeared to be some return to focusing on the individual businesses underlying the shares of stocks we own. 
Given the instability in the banking sector, a looming debt ceiling fight in the U.S. Congress, and the likelihood of a recession, the macro environment may not have fully loosened its grip on investor psyche, but the reprieve has been welcomed. On a shelf in my office sits a small white elephant bought during a trip to Agra, India with my middle daughter. Agra is a city where the Taj Mahal was built almost 400 years ago. In theory, my elephant is made of marble similar to that used in its construction. The cooperative where we purchased the figurine went to great lengths to show us how much craftsmanship was involved and how much stronger their marble is than the less expensive machine-made soapstone sculptures available at the airport and other touristy locations. The salesman used a piece of metal to scrape away at the competitor's soapstone, which produced significant dust while its marble reflected virtually no impact. The implications were clear. I could find a less expensive option elsewhere, but it would be neither as durable nor as vibrant over time. He was selling a Taj Mahal strong elephant, and it was worth the premium price. When I look at my elephant, I do typically wonder how much I overpaid for it, given the time pressures of being in town for just one day and the inherent information asymmetry of the transaction. I like to tell myself I overpaid by 30%, but that may be wishful thinking. Fortunately, the dollar amount was small, and the elephant elicits fond memories, which soften the pain of overpaying. I also look at the elephant and wonder about its durability. How different is it really from the airport elephants? Will mine really look the same in 20 years, in 40 years, with theirs? Is there any real difference in the craftsmanship or durability? Unfortunately, I did not have the foresight to buy a cheap elephant to run a proper experiment. Thoughts about my elephant's durability inevitably led to thoughts about the durability of companies in our portfolio. At Greenhaven Road, we are not day traders. We invest with a long time horizon. The largest predictor of our returns will be the long-term durability of the growth and earnings power of the companies which make up the bulk of our portfolio. Virtually every company puffs its chest out and claims to be built with the equivalent of Taj Mahal marble. However, less than 20% of the original S&P 500 companies remained in the index after the first 50 years. The failure rate for the smaller companies we focus on is even higher, as their vulnerability, as is their vulnerability to a recession. Which of our holdings are Taj Mahal strong, which are soapstone pretenders? Both can be profitable in the short term. Largest holdings. In the last letter, I tried to analyze the top holdings through the lens of fundamentals with the mantra of fundamentals matter. Implied in the argument that fundamentals matter is an assumption that the fundamentals will persist. A particular scourge to investors are value traps that always appear well-priced but continue to underperform because of ever-deteriorating fundamentals. The difference between a value trap and a beautiful compounding machine is the durability of the revenue growth and earnings. In this letter, I want to look at our portfolio through this lens of durability. While there are quantitative indicators of durability, such as low customer churn, this analysis will be more qualitative. Before we engage in this exercise, there is an important caveat. I'm trying to build a portfolio of different bets, so not everything we own will be optimized for durability. We will own special situations such as spinoffs and companies where gap accounting is hiding the fundamentals. This is not a durability at all cost portfolio, but just like fundamentals matter, durability does too. In the last two letters, I have written about two at, I've written about attributes I believe permeate our largest holdings. As a reminder, they are low churn, predictable, stable demand makes it easier to manage a company through a downturn as it significantly reduces the likelihood of revenue falling off a cliff. Secular tailwinds, even in a recessionary environment, secular tailwinds can provide company-specific growth despite a shrinking GDP. Positive product lifecycle dynamics, a combination of new products or products that are in that are early in their adoption curve can provide growth, even in a weak economy. Operating leverage, 
When combined with revenue, revenue growth, operating leverage should lead to accelerated profitability. We don't own companies with broken unit economics that are growing for growth's sake. Instead, we own companies with strong unit economics that are scaling and over time, the company's profitability growth should exceed their overall growth rate. Strong balance sheets. None of these companies are reliant on the markets to fund their operations. They have years of cash to operate and are either profitable or quickly approaching profitability. Of these five attributes, low churn and strong balance sheets are most indicative of durability, while secular tailwinds, positive product lifecycle dynamics, and operating leverage are supportive of revenue and earnings growth. PAR technology. PAR ended 2022 with over $100 million in cash on the balance sheet and no significant debt maturities until 2026. The company continues its march towards profitability, which is an important precursor to long-term survival. During the first quarter, PAR reiterated their commitment to hold expenses flat in their software business while continuing to grow revenues. By my estimates, PAR should grow annual recurring revenue, or ARR, by roughly 30% for the foreseeable future. This revenue should drop to the bottom line, making the overall company profitable by the end of this year and the software business itself profitable by early next year. PAR benefits from low single-digit churn on their core point-of-sale offering, which is important for long-term growth since the bottom of their proverbial bucket is not leaking. Their competitive landscape is also favorable. Their primary competitors are legacy systems from NCR and Oracle, for both of which POS systems are tertiary products. While there will be increasing competition from the likes of Toast and Square, developing and selling products for enterprise restaurants is different, and I believe PAR should be able to continue managing that landscape adeptly. There are three future sources of growth for PAR that, when paired with the low churn of their existing customers, bode well for future growth. This quarter, PAR announced the signing of a 900-location chicken wing restaurant for their new table service product. Moving into table service restaurants greatly expands their market, and these installations will start rolling out this year. A second leg of growth will come from an online ordering offering from Menu, a company that they acquired in 2022. The third leg of growth will be the continued rollout of PAR's payments product across its installed base. Interestingly, PAR has begun talking about an opportunity with the largest fast food chains, which historically have built and maintained POS systems in-house. As the need to integrate with multiple delivery services, maintain online ordering, support a robust loyalty program, and feed data into analytics platforms has intensified, the cost-benefit of developing in-house is not as clear-cut, even for the larger players. PAR currently has approximately 20,000 POS locations. There are 12,000 plus Burger Kings. Winning a Burger King-sized customer would be material, and those types of opportunities may very well start to materialize. There are several paths to sustain growth and profitability. When CEO Savneet Singh took over at PAR, the company had a single POS product with angry customers who were locked in. There, had been, there has been a multi-year effort to stabilize the core product, make acquisitions, and now develop new products. PAR is committed to making all these disparate technologies required to run a restaurant work together seamlessly under the umbrella of unified commerce. They are designing their products such that they work on a standalone basis, but are even more valuable to the end user when used in conjunction with other PAR products, taking advantage of shared data and expanded functionality. For example, PAR's payments offering is better when paired with POS as it greatly simplifies troubleshooting and reduces costs. 
Payments also improves the loyalty product as it feeds additional data into the platform. The goal when using PAR products together is for this improved functionality to reduce churn and increase cross-selling. Each step in the product evolution from stabilization to unified commerce is a step towards greater resiliency and durability of the overall company. To summarize, PAR has multiple sources of growth with the with their existing business. The new table service offering, menu acquisition, burgeoning payments offering, and potential migration of the largest operators to third-party software are just a few of the opportunities ahead. We can argue about the timing of adoption, magnitude of the opportunity, and appropriate multiple, but in my head, this is a business that has been in the gym training for the last four years and has now begun to quietly kick ass. KKR. Given the concerns in the financial markets about a banking crisis and a run on banks, share prices of all financials declined during the first quarter. KKR was not spared, falling more than 10% as Silicon Valley Bank saga unfolded with a parade of outflows, triggering by some tweets, texts, and a few clicks in their apps. Other than being in the financials category, KKR could not have less in common with SVB. At KKR, capital is pooled in over 100 vehicles and can only leave KKR if there is an investment realization or the firm proactively decides to return the capital. In fact, over 45% of the fee-paying capital is permanent, and there is over $100 billion in dry powder that KKR will call when ready to invest in new opportunities. Private equity with permanent capital and mountains of dry powder is one of the most durable businesses I can imagine. KKR can and likely will outlast us all. Celebrate. CLBT. Celebrate is an Israel-based company that came public via SPAC and is half-owned by a Japanese company. In other words, it has three strikes against it before we even get started. However, Celebrate has also be- has also been a self-funding, rapidly growing technology company since before it was fashionable. They have almost $200 million in cash and investments, single-digit churn, gross margins north of 80%, and net revenue retention that has consistently been 125% or higher. Their gap reported growth has been depressed due to accounting rules for on-premise licenses and their transition from selling perpetual licenses to software as a service. As the market leader for collect as the market leader in collect and review, Celebrate provides the tools law enforcement needs to gather digital evidence from cell phones. Their products help manage the data, track who has accessed it, document compliance with the terms of a search warrant, and make sense of the mountains of data, which generally include geolocation, contacts, texts, phone calls, voicemails, image metadata, and other social media data. The unit economics are excellent, and as the scaled player, Celebrate can invest more in R&D than smaller competitors. The competitive landscape is limited, most agencies multi-source, and there is product lock-in as use requires training. A trained certified technician carries more weight when test when testifying in court, so many labs put their users through training. Crime is not going away, digital devices are not going away, and law enforcement's need for tools to help connect data and criminals will only grow. Celebrite's customers are government agencies not subject to the same whims as a consumer, and Celebrite sells products that are mission critical. Can you picture a day where police departments will not have to document compliance with a search warrant of a phone? or one where law enforcement conducts investigations without looking at a subject's phone. In the first quarter, Toma Bravo completed their acquisition of Magnet Forensics, a Canadian company also in the digital investigation space. While this isn't a direct competitor to Celebrate, I find it notable that they paid multiples of where Celebrate currently trades. Celebrate is not going away anytime soon unless private equity or Axon, which already owns 5%, acquires it. Strong balance sheet, strong end markets, strong product lineup, limited competition, skilled player, Maybe not Taj Mahal strong, but this is nowhere near a typical soapstone spec.
API Group. API Group has two business lines, safety services and specialty services. Specialty services is an okay business. Their end customers are primarily telecom and utilities, and API Group will handle services such as electric and gas utility maintenance, water line and sewer installation, and underground electrical fiber optic cable installation. These are mission-critical products from large, stable customers with a significant backlog. The company has indicated desire to sell this business and focus on their crown jewel, safety services, which is focused on fire safety systems. The inspection and maintenance of these systems is statutory. It is required by law, thus non-discretionary, with enforcement typically coming from the fire marshal. The cost of losing the use of a facility is massive compared to the expense paid to API Group for maintaining compliance. An asset-light, profitable, legally mandated business that has consistently grown organically is an excellent business, hence our long position. API is in the process of digesting a large acquisition and currently has an elevated debt load, but I believe they will successfully navigate the transition and reward shareholders along the way. Burford Capital, B ticker symbol BUR. This is a new holding that is discussed in greater detail at the end of the letter as an appendix. Burford finances commercial litigation. It is the largest player in the industry, has the best deal flow, the best data, and has supplemental capabilities such as collections that give it a structural advantage. Given the sensitive nature of legal cases, there are unlikely to be auction situations, and Burford should continue to get opportunities where they are the sole bidder. Given the structure and incentives of law firms, litigation finance is likely to continue to grow. Burford has a very strong balance sheet and also manages third-party capital. They've compounded their own capital in excess of 25% for well over a decade and do not rely on capital markets. Absent a significant change in the law or a change in human nature, I believe that Burford should have an advantage position for a very long time. Elephant hunting. I just spent pages discussing durability and its importance. I believe that over 80% of our capital, including all the companies listed above, is well positioned for the long term, and I would sleep well knowing I had to hold these positions for five years. However, as this is the preponderance of my life savings, I also want to have a diversification of bets. We have the ability to invest anywhere, and markets are inefficient, so we are also invested in a couple of special situations. These are smaller positions because the risk of losing capital is higher on a relative basis, but I believe they could be worth multiples of their current share price. This is big game hunting. LifeCore, LFCR. LifeCore was previously called Landec and had two businesses. The first business was what I would affectionately call a crappy avocado business with volatile earnings due to both variations in crop size and pricing. After several fits and starts, they have finally divested it. The other business is a contract development and manufacturing organization, or CDMO, which manufactures drugs for pharmaceutical companies. This is a specialized activity, and since certain classes of drugs need to go through a reapproval process if the manufacturer is changed, it makes an excellent business with real switching costs and barriers to entry. LifeCore is the manufacturer of 29 different FDA-approved products, which provides diversification but also leads to lumpy results as margins vary by product and utilization varies from quarter to quarter. In March, the company announced that it would miss earnings and, as a result, put it in violation of its debt covenants. The market reacted violently, sending the shares down a whopping 67%. Around the same time, LifeCore also announced the largest customer win in its history and a prepayment of $10 million by the new customer and the initiation of a strategic review process to sell the company. There's an activist investor who owns 9.9%. Now, the sale of the company is really just a sale of the high-quality CDMO business. In the past, CDMO assets have traded at 10 to 20 times EBITDA. 
Depending on how you view the new customer win and certain margin assumptions, I believe that a range of $8 to $20 is possible for the equity. We invested a bit under 2% of the fund at a sub-3 share price or a sub-$100 million valuation. Matt Sweeney of Laughing Water Capital and Adam Patinkin of David Capital were helpful in explaining the opportunity and potential investor misperceptions. Both have been to the Partners Fund events at the Ocean House. Barnes & Noble Education, BNED. Retailing tends to be a bad business. While there are exceptions such as Walmart, which benefits from scale and local monopolies, retailers are not particularly durable. Barnes & Noble Education operates college bookstores. In the 1990s, it was a good business, but today it is not. College students increasingly buy their books from other sources, such as Amazon, use pi pirated PDFs from dubious websites, or do not procure books at all for cost or logistical reasons. The combination of declining enrollments and declining rates of book purchases have de has decimated the company's earnings and effectively made it a nonprofit today. Operating 793 physical bookstores and 606 virtual bookstores, serving 6 million students, generating 1.5 million, 1.5 billion in revenue and no profits. Why did we invest incremental capital into Barnes & Noble education this past quarter? The short answer is that they are likely to be a much more durable business in two years. Why? How? Four years ago, they launched First Day Complete, a program where they partner with schools and publishers to provide all of a student's books, physical and digital, billed directly through the school. Because of publisher discounts, students save 30 to 50%, schools receive a commission on the book sales, and publishers are actually paid for their products. It's a win-win-win. Make that a win-win-win-win. It is particularly beneficial for Barnes & Noble Education. To date, when schools convert from a traditional bookstore to first day complete, Barnes & Noble Education sees a 90% increase in revenue and a 130% increase in gross profit for that location. While the unit economics of first day complete are transformative, unfortunately, less than 20% of schools are currently on the platform. Earlier this year, Barnes & Noble acknowledged that their old model was broken and they were going to aggressively work on converting schools to the program. With the exception of the handful of very profitable locations, conversion would be mandatory. Given an industry structure with limited competition and the fact that First Day Complete is not only a win for students, but also generates more revenue for schools, I think it is highly likely that enough schools convert to realize the improved economics. Barnes & Noble Education has an activist investor that owns more than 10% of the company, which makes up a disproportionate amount of their fund. In other words, they care about the outcome. It appears that they are driving the move to First Day Complete, as well as a company commitment to stop burning money on its Bart Bartleby unit. BNED is followed by just two sell-side analysts, has a sub-$100 million market cap, and as best I can tell, the number of people modeling the company's economics if they are successful with first-day complete transition is tiny. The sell-side analysts have published nothing, and their models still do not incorporate the transition. Historical numbers are virtually meaningless since they incorporate COVID school shutdowns and the first non-day complete model. If the, if the company is successful in the transition, I think EBITDA should be well in excess of $125 million, and because the revenue is more subscription-like in nature, should garner a higher multiple, with revenue growth, earnings growth, and multiple expansion. It is not hard to justify valuations several times higher than the current sub-$100 million market cap if the transition is successful. Shorts. During the quarter, the company remained short some major indices, as well as a flying taxi company, an EV charging company, a zero-revenue battery company, and an EV company that has a market capitalization in excess of $14 billion, though it delivered fewer than 1,500 cars in the first quarter. 
We added a short position of an American manufacturing company that specializes in piping and is facing a significantly more intense competitive landscape. Outlook. The consensus view is that the U.S. will experience a recession. This won't be good for anybody, as it will entail job losses and increased anxiety. While I have spent pages telling you about how durable our portfolio is, all of the companies that we own will be negatively affected. That is the bad news. The good news is that for our larger holdings, with their low churn, strong balance sheets, secular tailwinds, and positive product lifecycle dynamics, our company should survive quite well. For our special situations, a recession may impact the multiple the CDMO business may sell for, or the multiple one may apply if the first day complete transition is successful at Barnes & Noble Education. But a recession should not prevent the sale or the transaction or the transition. Each day that passes, we get a day closer to the day when fundamentals rule the day. Each day that passes, the companies that we own get stronger. Time is our friend, even if we have to endure a recession. Sincerely, Scott. Dear partners. Oh, this is one main capitals first quarter letter. Uh, my friend, your own Neymark. Dear partners, for the first quarter of 2023, one main capital partners LP returned 12.2% net of fees and expenses compared to 7.5% for the S&P 500 and 2.7% for the Russell 2000. Since its February 2018 inception, the fund has delivered an annualized net return of 20.3% compared to 9.5% and 3.9% for the S&P and Russell 2000 respectively. A $1 million investment in the fund at inception would be worth $2.6 million today after all fees and expenses, whereas the same amount invested in the S&P or Russell without dividends with dividends reinvested would be worth $1.6 and $1.2 million respectively. Since the fund's inception, there have been frequent reasons to get out of the market. In 2018, the trade war with China threatened to crush the economy. In 2020, it was COVID. In 2021, a speculative retail mania seemed destined to end poorly. In 2022, runaway inflation exacerbated by the Ukraine war led to a rapid rise in interest rates, negatively impacting multiples. Thus far in 2023, we have witnessed a banking crisis resulting in a significant contraction in U.S. bank lending, accompanied by a decline in job openings and consumer spending. This will likely have a negative impact on corporate earnings. Of course, adopting a bearish stance often appears prudent when storm clouds are on the horizon. After all, it seems reasonable to sell stocks before a storm in hopes of buying them back once they become cheaper. However, we must continuously remind ourselves that even if a bearish view is accurate, it can only yield rewards in the short term. In the long run, corporate profits and stock prices generally move in one direction, upward. Despite the long-term beliefs of being bullish, when I look in the mirror, I don't see a bull or a bear. Instead, I see an avid collector of minority ownership interests in businesses. When there are plenty of them available at attractive valuations, I want to own them. Over the last five years, I have managed to find good businesses with strong management teams at attractive prices. Consequently, despite all the reasons to sell, the fund has stayed the course and remained largely invested. Thus far, the results have been satisfactory. More importantly, when I objectively assess the fund's current portfolio and watch list, I am more excited today than at any point since its inception. High-quality businesses with low valuations and strong growth prospects, prospect outlooks are plentiful, providing the necessary ingredients for exceptional forward returns. While predicting exactly when we will be rewarded for capitalizing on these opportunities is difficult, I'm confident 
that we own a collection of high potential IRR investments that the fund's future is bright. Passing the baton. If investing for the short term is like a sprint and investing for the long term a marathon, my investing style is best characterized as a relay. As you know, a relay race is a team sport in which one member completes their part of the course before passing a baton to the next member, who then continues the race for the team and so on. To win, all team members must do their part. This type of competition closely resembles how I view a good investment. Let me elaborate. While I typically look three to five years ahead when setting price targets for core investments, I also qualitatively assess other time horizons. To initiate or hold an investment, I need to have a favorable view of the short term and long term and believe that each of those periods can carry their weight. Short term, one to three years. It is unlikely for an equity to perform well if the underlying business is deteriorating with no sign of stabilization or if it is obviously going to miss a near-term investor expectation. Market participants often over-extrapolate both positive and negative trends. Consequently, I find it more practical to own businesses that are under-earning rather than over-earning. To ensure this team member carries its weight, near-term business fundamentals should be stable or improving. Medium term, three to five years. When setting price targets for investments, I generally look three to five years ahead. This time frame allows for, in certain cases, a highly variant view compared to what the current price is implying. It also extends further out than many active managers. However, it is not so distant that I lose confidence in my ability to forecast a business. For this team member to carry its weight, the business must, by this point, show that it can generate meaningful, unlevered earnings or free cash flow relative to our entry valuation. Three, long-term, six to 10 years. If my forecasts for years three to five prove to be reasonably accurate, the hope is that we will be rewarded with a substantially higher stock price. However, if rapid earnings per share growth is counteracted by significant multiple contraction due to perceived business prospect deterioration, exciting returns become less likely. Therefore, for this team member to carry its weight, the business must demonstrate that the three to five year outlook beginning three to five years from now remains promising. In other words, investors should be eager to take the baton from us whenever we choose to pass it on to them. For this reason, I generally avoid investing in businesses with an obvious terminal risk on the horizon, even if that risk is very distant. Just as all members must carry, just as all team members must carry their weight to do well in a relay race, a business's short, medium, and long-term fundamentals must work together to generate strong returns in investing. As outlined in the perfect investment section of the Q3 2022 letter, there is no such thing as a perfect investment. Just like it's a coach's responsibility to build the best team possible with the players that are available, it is my job to evaluate the trade-offs we make by owning one security over another. New position, Dental Corp Holdings, DNTL. In the first quarter, the fund purchased the fund initiated a position in Dental Corp Holdings, DNTL, Canada's largest operator of dental practices, with over 1,800 dentists serving 2 million active patients across 500 locations. The company was established in 2011 by its CEO, Graham Rosenberg, who went on to partner with several institutions to accelerate growth through acquisition before going public in 2021. Currently, Rosenberg holds a 5% stake in the company with 35% voting power, while private equity firm L. Catterton owns 40% with a 28% voting power. 
Dental service organizations, or DSOs, are solid businesses that own dental practices, employ medical staff, and manage operations. They benefit from a highly diversified, predominantly cash-paying customer base, and are resistant to technological disruption or economic fluctuations. In fact, Canadian per capita dental expenditures have grown at 1.5x the rate of GDP over the past 45 years, increasing in 43 of those, four, of those years. DSO's underlying business stability enables them to support high leverage, making them ideal private equity rollups. Additionally, the pool of potential acquisition targets is extensive, with roughly 95% of Canada's 15,000 practices independently operated by dentists either approaching retirement or increasingly preferring to focus on patient care rather than practice management. A typical practice generates $2.5 million in revenue and $400,000 in EBITDA and is acquired for six to eight times EBITDA with 75% paid in cash and 25% in DNTL equity. Larger multi-location acquisitions are acquired for 8 to 10x EBITDA. Following acquisition, dental typically experiences a 10 to 15% increase in EBITDA due to purchasing scale, technology implementation, and operational efficiency. Dentists who sell their practices usually sign five-year employment agreements with 95% renewal rates. In addition to receiving DNTL equity, dentist compensation is based on performance of their individual practice, where they participate in 20% of the EBITDA upside-downside from target levels. Dental's resilient business model and attractive growth profile contributed to its well-received 2021 IPO price at $14, with investors pushing the stock to $18 plus within the year. However, the company's stock was hit hard in 2022 due to its low float during the duration unwind, causing share prices to plummet to $6. On the way down, insiders purchased $700,000 worth of stock on the open market at $11 per share. In November 2022, the company announced a strategic review in response to unsolicited expressions of interest, presumably from several PE buyers familiar with and fond of the DSO model. Notably, the L. Catterton directors were not part of the Strategic Alternative Committee, suggesting potential interest in, re in reacquiring the company. KKR and Blackstone, both active in the DSO space, could also be logical acquirers of DNTL. Last month, Dental reported strong Q4 results and provided an optimistic outlook for 2023. In its earnings release, the company disclosed that certain loans given to management by the company used to buy shares in the IPO were modified such that they would be forgiven if the company is sold. Based on these factors, I believe it is likely that the company will be sold for a significant premium relative to the prices at which the fund acquired its position. However, if the business chooses to remain public, I anticipate that it will be able to acquire practices at lower multiples than those paid in recent past, allowing it to grow its free cash flow per share at attractive rates. In either scenario, I believe that we will generate attractive returns. Round 2. Limbach Holdings. LMB. Limbach Holdings was the fund's largest winner in 2020 and remains one of our most lucrative investments to date. In my Q2 2021 letter, I detailed numerous concerns regarding the company's CEO that eroded my trust, ultimately leading to me exiting the position entirely by Q3 2021. In January of this year, Limbach announced that its former CEO would be replaced by then-COO Michael McCann at the end of Q1. I believe that Mike was the right leader for this business and acted quickly to make LMB a large holding for the fund once again. As a reminder, LMB is a leading specialty contractor that offers design, engineering, construction, installation, and maintenance services to commercial and industrial clients across the U.S. The company specializes in HVAC, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and control systems for institutions with mission-critical infrastructure such as hospitals and data centers. 
Since going public in 2016, the company has strategically transitioned from general contractor relationships to owner-director, owner-direct relationships. In general contract relationships, or GCRs, Limbach manages new construction projects or major renovations awarded by GCs. Conversely, owner-direct relationships, or ODRs, involves providing maintenance services or managing smaller renovations assigned by building owners or property managers. GCR projects are typically measured in years, working capital intensive, and characterized by low margins with high margin volatility. In contrast, ODR projects are shorter in nature, requiring less inventory slash receivable build, and offering margins not only more predictable, but also two to three times higher than GCR. The margin discrepancy stems from building owners with mission-critical infrastructure exhibiting greater loyalty and reduced price sensitivity compared to GCs, since they view LMB as a trusted strategic partner, especially when it comes to ensuring uninterrupted operations at their facility. While ODR accounted for only 20% of revenues and 30% of gross profits in 2017, it now represents approximately 50% of revenues and 65% of gross profits. This shift can be attributed to several factors. First, LMB has become increasingly selective in pricing and accepting new GCR projects, resulting in a 40% decline in GCR revenues and a 20% decrease in gross profits over the past three years. Secondly, LMB has invested in SG&A to drive mid-teens organic revenue growth in ODR revenues during the same period. Lastly, the company made a 2021 acquisition that was largely ODR-focused. The transition resulted in a doubling of EBITDA margins from 3% in 2017 to 6% presently, and led to improved free cash flow conversion. Going forward, management anticipates that ODR revenues should grow in the teens while CGR or while GCR revenues should shrink to the single digits. The ongoing business mix shift alone should lead to significant EBITDA margin expansion from current levels. Furthermore, LMB ended 2022 in a net cash position and continues to per- pursue acquisitions at multiples that promise significant EBITDA and free cash flow per share growth as they occur. The fund's average cost upon reinitiating its position is approximately $12 per share, equating to roughly 3 and 5x 2023 projected EBITDA and free cash flow. For comparison, LMB's peers are valued at 10 to 12 times EBITDA and 15 to 20 times earnings by the public markets. Exceptional investments often benefit from both earnings per share growth and multiple expansion. I believe Limbach can deliver on both fronts and eagerly await to see the company's performance in the coming years. Outlook. Over the past year, rates have risen significantly, and the economy is finally starting to slow, which is an intended consequence of the Fed's policy. A notable decline in job openings from previous record levels has occurred this year, along with year-on-year credit card spending entering negative territory in March. Furthermore, the ramifications of the regional banking crisis in the first quarter are yet to be fully felt or understood. While private sector balance sheets remain strong, they will inevitably be weakened if the economy rolls into a recession. However, it is important to note that a recession, let alone a deep one, is not a certainty, and many of the equities we own already reflect a lot of pessimism in their stock prices. We won't know for sure until we look back at this period with hindsight, but there's a decent chance that investors are acting on an overly cautious manner due to lingering scars from the GFC. In my opinion, it is impractical to wait for a a once-in-a-generation buying opportunity that may never materialize, particularly when numerous investment opportunities are available that offer attractive IRRs even in a recession scenario. Furthermore, many of our investments would, during a severe recession, create even greater value than I'm currently underwriting. As their strong balance sheets 
would enable them to invest for market share growth organically or through the acquisition of distressed competitors. As such, the fund remains largely invested, and I am confident that our portfolio is well positioned to deliver strong results in the years ahead. As always, I'm excited to see what the future has in store for the fund. Thank you for your continued support and confidence. Please reach out with any questions. Sincerely, your own Neymark.